You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture is from Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew back or close by. And if you don't have one at home, we'd love to give it to you as a gift. Um, Matthew 17, 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Audra. Good morning. If you will uh, open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, We have today... An odd story that uh, kind of when I was first reading it, preparing for the series through Matthew, it's like one of those stories you're like, all right, what, what is going on here? It's confusing. It seems to be about taxes and, and a wild fishing story, you know, um, and it's a little confusing to kind of get your mind and your heart around what's happening. Underneath the story is one of the most profound and central truths for us as followers of Jesus, a story and a truth about how Jesus entered into this world to set you free. To set you free. And what he's done to set us free, to redeem us from the things that crush us and pull us down is stunning. It's an act of incredible sacrificial love, and it really is what this whole passage is all about. So what I want to do is kind of bring you into the passage, but first kind of give you a a context to think about as your experience in the world, um, I don't know if you're friends with anybody who's like an entrepreneur, but kind of when you're around entrepreneurial people, what they're always doing is they're looking for needs in the world, felt needs, gaps, issues. Maybe there's an experience where people are struggling to have financial security and a certain kind of experience of life, and so you're coming in trying to create a, a way to bring financial stability and health to a certain kind of like group of people, or you feel these people with medical issues over here, and you see this like lack of medical care and health care available, and so you you kind of think about a business idea that could help bring health care to these people, or you see communication failures, and you see kind of social media and what's happening with social media, and you're like, I wonder if there's a way to help people connect without all the algorithms and all the sharing, and like, and so you create a solution there in IT world, or whatever it might be. You're seeing these kind of felt needs in humanity, and you're trying to supply a way to meet people in that space to provide a good or a service or a product of some kind that meets them in that space. Now, the kind of corrupt side of that entrepreneurial effort is when you are exploiting those human desires. You're exploiting those human needs. So you think about the sort of predatory uh, lending experience that was happening with predatory mortgages in the kind of 2000s leading up to the housing crisis in 2008. And it's people kind of seeing this opportunity to make money off of people that weren't actually healthy for those people. It's going to set up a lot of people to experience a lot of financial pain, financial collapse. And people are taking advantage of that reality. Or you see it often all the scam things that go on right now, right? Do you guys have on your phone, does it say like, you're getting the scam call? Like, oh, this is, 
Call it from a scammer. That's nice to know. So you don't have to like think that the IRS really has put out a warrant for your arrest. You know, uh, you ever got that one? First time I got that one, I'm like, really? Could have sworn. <laughs> Could have sworn, sworn I paid all my taxes. Um, there's a warrant out for my arrest in like Idaho or something. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and so you have these like scams where people are kind of tapping into these different desires and needs and trying to uncover something and supply something to take advantage of you. And perhaps there's no, like, uh, I'm going to use the word industry, and you'll understand what I mean in a second. There's no kind of realm or domain where corruption has been so prevalent as religion. Within religious institutions throughout history, corruption has abounded. It's been prevalent in every generation, in every age, throughout all cultures, throughout history, because there's a fundamental thing inside the human being that longs for some sense of the transcendent or the eternal. It's inside. It's inside every human. And every human is trying to find some way to kind of fill that need. And so there's this famous quote by a guy named Blaise Pascal who said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. That's where you get that phrase, if you've ever heard it, there's a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. I had a friend that once said, he's like, yeah, I feel like mine's more shaped like a BMW. And uh, I'm like, yeah, maybe, try it out, you know, see how it goes. And uh, turns out it's not. And, um, and I, I think there is within us, as human beings, a longing to be in right relationship with God, a longing to be loved, a longing to have meaning, a longing to have purpose, a longing to feel free from the guilt and the shame that often kind of plagues and kind of nips at the heels of us as human beings and kind of binds up our legs that keep tripping us up, a longing for a sense of security, a longing to be seen. Every human being has this. And so you might feel it in different ways, whether you're a Christian, have been a Christian for a long time, or you're exploring Christianity, you have this sense of these longings, these longings for something transcendent, for something eternal, for something outside of the sort of tangible, material, and temporal moment that we live in. And people throughout history have found ways to kind of try to solve that longing. So most religious systems, if you study the history of sociology in different cultures and the history of religion, are often finding ways to help people understand some way of being right with the creator, right with the transcendence, being at peace with God or in relationship or communion with something bigger than themselves. Religions have done this throughout all, all of history. And often those religions set up systems where it's through your effort, your achievement, if you do this thing or do that thing, if you make these sacrifices or perform in these particular ways and abstain from these particular actions, then this whole system is now I can know the love of God or God can be happy with me or I can be comfortable that I'm going to go to heaven when I die or something like that. And so we construct these systems of religion where people think, if I could just do this thing, then I could experience these longings that I have. Even outside of religion, we construct systems where we think, if I can achieve this with my family, if I can get my family to this particular point in life, then I'll feel like my life's good enough, it's meaningful. If I can get to this level in my career and this kind of level of pay, then my life will be enough and I'll feel like I'm worth something. If I can prove to my parents that, that I'm successful, then they'll love me and that'll be enough for me. If I can prove to my peers that like, look, I matter and I'm cool like you, then it'll feel like good and they'll accept me. And we're, we're trying to fill that vacuum and all of these kind of human effort ways, and what it leads us to feel is crushed. We're crushed. It's overwhelming. It doesn't work. Maybe if you're trying to build it through a family, there's a sense of like you're going up that ladder, and at some point the ladder gets overwhelming, and at some point 
the rungs break and you fall down and then you try to get back up. In your career, you're trying to progress through your career stage to stage and you feel like I can do this fresh out of college, getting a job, getting the next job. All of a sudden it's overwhelming. You're like, get a different job. It's overwhelming. Get a different job. It's not, you know, and it's like you're falling down the rungs a little bit. You feel it in your health. You're going to be healthy and then you twist your knee. You get a bad back. Life progresses. Your body decays. Like we try and we try and we try and and it crushes us. It's overwhelming because we're trying to fill this void through human effort. And this passage is really about Jesus meeting us in that painful space and what he's done to set us free from that. How so? How is a story about taxes and a fish about the freedom that Jesus provides? Let's look at it together. Look with me. Verse 24. What I want to do is kind of walk through the story and uh, just kind of help you get into the cultural moment, what's happening in their own religious system uh, that kind of leads up to this moment. And then we're going to unpack just a few takeaways from it. Verse 24 of Matthew 17, it says, when they came to, to Capernaum, that's Jesus and his disciples, which is sort of their home base. It's where Peter and Andrew are from, James and John. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay taxes? All right, what's going on? I want to kind of give you some context. This moment is not a Roman tax collector. The two drachma tax is a a tax for the temple in Jerusalem. So here's what's happening. You're going to, in this story, within a a month or so, kind of chronologically, it'll be about three years, park church time, uh, we will get to Matthew chapter 21. And... uh, And we'll get to Matthew chapter 21. And in Matthew 21, we looked at it for Palm Sunday, and we looked at it again, uh, kind of connected to it on Easter Sunday, where we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He goes in, and it becomes clear that Jesus is embracing. He's the king who's come to redeem or to set free, to liberate Israel. And they have an expectation of what that's going to mean. It's going to mean driving out the Romans. We've talked about that a lot over the past several weeks. As soon as he rides into Jerusalem and all the people are singing Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who who comes in the name of the Lord, he goes right into the temple and it begins this massive conflict because what he sees when he goes into the temple is a marketplace where people are being taken advantage of. Their hunger to be in the presence of God, their hunger to be in right relationship with God, their hunger to know the love and the approval of God has been taken advantage of by a whole system of corruption. And so when you go into the marketplace or you go into the temple in Jerusalem, what you're going to see, especially on a feast week like this, is you're going to see a bunch of tables. And imagine it. You've taken your family. uh, You've made your kind of uh, pilgrimage from maybe Galilee. You've taken the day or two walk down to Jerusalem. You come into the city, and it's time to celebrate this festival. You're going to have to do some sacrifices to be in this space. You get that. That's a part of your story. It's in the law. It represents something about God's mercy and forgiveness. But to experience those sacrifices you kind of got to make it through a cacophony of this marketplace mess. And you walk into this space and you come and you've got your coins and, and you walk in and you need to pay for, maybe it's a sheep for your Passover meal. And you bring your money and, and you hand your money and they're like, oh no, we don't take any money with Caesar's head on it. You need to exchange that money for this other currency because we don't want Caesar's head to be used to support our temple. So you need to change the money. Okay, where do I change the money? We'll go over to those money changers over there. You're like, okay. So you bring all of your kind of different coins, Roman coins, and you bring them here. It's a denarius. And you take these, this money and you exchange it. And then that 
Money changer charges you a fee. You're like, oh man, I kind of run out of a little more money. I have to give them extra money. A steeper fee. That exchange rate was not awesome. And it was like steeper than I expected. Okay, so now I've got the money and I'm going to come and I'm going to buy this different sheep. And you're like, okay, so you buy the sheep. And you're like, but I also brought these pigeons for this other sacrifice. Like, well, that pigeon has like a thing on it. So you're going to have to buy some different pigeons because that's not pure enough. It's not clean enough. It's not ritual, ritually acceptable. So you're going to, good for you, lucky for you. We've got pigeons over here, 1999. Buy one, get one free, special deal, right? You're like, oh my gosh, but I had this pigeon, you know, let it go. And like, get, get, get another pigeon. You've got another one. You're like, okay, I've got this. And you're like, hey, have you paid your am- annual temple tax yet? You know, the two drachma temple tax. You're like, I, did, I forgot who has to pay that. Remember every son over the age of 20, has to pay the two drachma temple tax, talks about it in Exodus 30, remember? Like, oh yeah, okay, well I'm here and I've got my 24-year-old son and my 20-year-old son, so how much is that? Well, two, four, six, okay, six drachmas, I'm, I'm paying for that. We're like, no, those are denarius again, you gotta go back to the money changer table. And you're like, I just wanna be in the temple and, and be in the presence of God and know his love and do these sacrifices and there's all these things and people seem to be making so much money off of this system. And what you're going to see in Matthew 21 is Jesus walks in there and it, you know, gentle and lowly Jesus doesn't feel so gentle and lowly for a few minutes. He makes a whip and he starts just tossing these tables, tossing them, cracking his whip and driving out all the money changers and people that were buying and selling stuff, saying, get out of here. You've taken my father's house which is supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where people come to commune with the God of the universe. And you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. You broke this place and made it about making money off of people's desire to be in relationship with God. He's so angry and he drives them out. And that climactic moment begins to kind of unravel for him a tension with the religious leaders that ultimately leads to his betrayal, accusation, condemnation, and death. That's going to happen really quickly. As soon as he goes into that system and tells people what he really thinks about what they've done with this place, it will lead to his death. Fast forward, kind of rewind, sorry, rewind one month. Just like you can start paying your taxes sometime probably in February, kind of for the April 15th date, in the same way, instead of collecting all the taxes in that moment, the two drachma temple tax, they would start about a month early and give you permission. They'd send out Jewish tax collectors to collect that temple tax ahead of time so you didn't have to deal with that part of that experience in the temple. And so they'd send to all the provinces these Jewish tax collectors. That's what's happening right here in this passage. Matthew 24, or Matthew 17, verse 24. When they, the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And you feel the weight of this moment because you felt these kind of rising tension a rising conflict that's happening between the leaders of the temple system, the Jewish religious elite, and Jesus, where he's already challenged their concept of the law. He's even challenged their concept of the temple. He's challenged their concept of Sabbath. He's challenged their concept of forgiveness. He keeps challenging the way they're thinking. You feel this rising tension. And so they feel like, hey, let's find out what Jesus' posture towards the temple is going to be. And so let's just go up and ask one of his disciples, is he going to pay the tax? Because we'll know a lot about what he thinks about our system by whether or not he's willing to pay this tax. And so they come up to Peter. It's likely Peter's house. Jesus is inside. Peter answers the door. He's like, hey. And he's like, hey, I'm here to collect the two drachma tax. Is Jesus going to pay? And Peter's like, you know, the PR guy that gets like caught in like the hard moment. And he's like, yes. You know, like, uh, uh, 
And there's like walks back inside, you know, like uh, over to Jesus. And Jesus grabs him and says, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. That's where we're at right here in verse 25. He said, Peter, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? Simon's the other name for Peter. From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? Like, what do you think? Do you think I'm supposed to pay? Let's think about it. Let's think about tolls and taxes. Who pays taxes? Do the kings of earth exact a tax from their children or from other people? Right? So now I have to think about this outside of like the American democracy system where in theory we're all supposed to pay taxes. We're all supposed to. Right? And so outside of that system in kind of kingdoms of old and still today in different kind of... Uh, different monarchies, you have a a kingdom where somebody, a king owns or kind of has dominion over a land and to participate in the realm of the king, to live in that realm, to be able to experience life in that realm, to experience the protection of the king with the king's military, to be able to kind of farm and till and cultivate in that land, you need to pay taxes or tolls or duties of any kind to the king. You need to pay that. And that's how the king is going to kind of both find his own life and kind of uh, fund his own life. It's the way he's going to fund the military. It's the way he's going to fund the different services and kind of, kind of different things he provides for the people that are in his kingdom. And so other people need to pay that. Do the children pay? Do the children pay? Do the children need to pay their dad to live in their dad's kingdom? No. Except on Halloween. We have a candy tax in my house every Halloween. 10% of your candy comes to dad. It's just... <laughs> It's good. I'm not getting a costume on. That's for you. I did that. Now it's your time to pay dues. Um, <laughs> pay dues. So I, uh, Reese's peanut butter cups mostly. <laughs> Just mostly. All right, so you walk in. Do, do, do children need to pay tax to their father, the king, to live in the kingdom? No. They're heirs. Their dad's the king. Do you need to pay to be in relationship with your father? Or is it just inherent in your identity as a son or a daughter? It's inherent in your identity. Do you need to pay to experience like the productive care of your father? Is that inherent in your identity as a son or a daughter? It's inherent. In fact, not only is it inherent to experience relationship and nearness and be in the presence of, but it's also inherent in your identity as a son or daughter to be an heir of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be yours. So do children need to pay their father, the king, taxes to be a part of their kingdom? No. That's what it says right here. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, so then the sons are free. The children of the king get to be in relationship with the king for free. They don't have to pay. They don't have to earn. They don't have to achieve. It's inherent in their identity. They're free. They're accepted. They're welcome. They're welcome. And what Jesus is saying here and kind of tapping into and what Peter understands is he's saying whoever's over the temple, which the temple is all about God's dwelling place on earth, God dwelling among his people, it is God's house. And do me, do I, Jesus, need to pay a two drachma tax to be in the presence of my father? That's a big thumbs down. I don't need to. I'm the son of God. I get to be in relationship with my father for free. I don't owe any debt. I don't have to pay any price. It's inherent in who I am. Just earlier in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, the father is declaring over the son. And Peter's there where he says, this is my beloved son. I'm so pleased with him. I'm pleased with him. And so Jesus is saying, I don't have to pay. I'm free. So like, okay, are we just going to move on? No, I love what happens here in the passage. 
says this, however, to not give offense to them, why don't you go ahead and go cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. A shekel is worth four drachmas. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I love this. Jesus is like, hey, I don't need to pay anything, but let's not, let's not make a scene right now. I will make a scene in about a month. Stay with me. <laughs> Stay next to me. We're going to make a scene. It's not the time. It's not the place. And that's not the guy. It's not the time. It's not the place. That's not the guy. A lot of the reason why he spoke in parables throughout his ministry was not just to kind of give us like crypt interesting stories. It was actually stay cryptic so that the people that most wanted to kill him wouldn't be brought to that climactic moment before it was his time. He was coming and preparing to lay down his life in Jerusalem on the Passover. We're not there yet. So he's like, hey, let's not create a scandal right now. Let's pay the tax. Anybody have money? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, ah. Why don't you go take a hook, toss it in the sea, snag a fish. No, there's not even any lure on it. No worm, nothing. Just throw the hook, snag one, and voila, a four drachma coin. Four drachma coin. We can pay for me, and we can pay for you. I love it. It's like the father moment. We're like, hey, would you like a piece of candy? And the kid's like, yeah, but you don't have any. And you like go behind their ear, and you're like, oh, ha <laughs> You know, like, ah, like dad's magic. You know, um, it's like one of those moments where Jesus is like, he's like, oh, let's... Let's, let's do it with a fish. And, um, and so this whole idea is, is stunning. It's like, what's, what's happening here? Why would he even kind of through a miracle do it? He's, what, one of the things he's showing is the kingdom. He's not just like a son of the king. The kingdom is his. The power is his. The dominion is his. He has authority over all things, even a fish in the sea that he can tell Peter, just go cast a hook, snag a fish, open its mouth, presto, four drachmas. I'll pay for me and I'll pay for you. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. One of the things, one of my takeaways from this passage is just Jesus is awesome. He's awesome. He's smart. He's wise. He's brilliant. He's bold. He's creative. He's funny. He's loving. He's humble. He knows when to confront things directly and when to let things go. He knows when to address an issue. He's not afraid of conflict, but he has conflict in the right moment, at the right time, with the right people. There's a wisdom to his ways that is so captivating to me. I like love the gospel is because you just get to experience Jesus and you're like, man, over and over and over again, just watch him. Watch him. Watch his humility. Watch his kindness. Watch his boldness. Watch his courage. Watch him forgive and heal and mend and care. Watch when he's tender. Watch when he says stuff that's like weird to you and you're like, oh, that was weird. That's not what I expected. Lean into that. Because it's going to be awesome. It is again and again and again. He's just brilliant. It's like following him is a joy because you get to watch this human who is all the things that humanity was supposed to be. He's like the perfect human. You get to experience that. But what else is going on here? It's bigger than that. It's bigger than, hey, here's some wisdom of ways to be shrewd and tactical in the way you kind of avoid different situations and press in. It's bigger than that. Most fundamentally in this passage, we're seeing... A little picture of what Jesus has ultimately come to do. It brings us right into the centerpiece of his mission. It's no surprise or no accident that Matthew puts this whole passage on the heels of, chapter, of verse 24 and 25. When they came to, sorry, in verse 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. 
and they were greatly distressed. It's the second time he has predicted to his disciples, prepared them for his coming death and resurrection. He did it again in chapter 16. That's that moment where Peter's like, no, you can't die. That's not, the what, it's not what messiahs do. Messiahs win. Messiahs succeed. Messiahs dominate. Messiahs conquer. That's what messiahs do. Messiahs don't die. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're getting in the way of what I came to do. What I came to do. So here again, he says, here's what's about to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, the religious elite. I'm going to be delivered into their hand. They're going to betray me, condemn me, hand me over to Rome, and the Son of Man will be crucified. And on the third day, he will rise. And this is breaking the disciples' heart. They're like, why does he keep saying this? It's not what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to conquer. Why would he die? Why would he die? Why would he need to die? Let me tell you a little story. It's about a debt that we keep trying to pay to be in the presence of the God of the universe. And we create systems and structures where we try to measure up and we try to earn our way, we try to pay our debt, we try to pay our fees, and all it does is create these systems where we compare ourselves to others and we compete against others, structures that cultivate pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and shame and condemnation and guilt, and that system crushes people. And you can do it religiously. You can show up at church and say, I'm going to pay my debt by getting involved in a church and going to group and doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And maybe then God will accept me. Maybe then God will love me. Maybe then God will care about me and forgive me for the things I've done wrong. Or, or we kind of construct it in society. And if I can just like get that next moment or that next thing and make the progress in my life and create this life I've always wanted to, then I'll feel right and at peace. And we try to fill that void in our own effort. And all it does is crush people. And Jesus enters into that broken system he doesn't have to pay anything. He's a son. He's a son of God. But he enters into it and he lays down his own life. He sheds his own blood to pay for you and for me. To free us. To actually give us the permission to share in his identity as beloved children of God. That through faith in Christ, through faith in what he would accomplish through his death and his resurrection, we are forgiven our sin. We're forgiven our rebellion. We're cleansed from that record of debt. It's like canceled. And you're welcomed in the presence of God for free. You get to know the love of God for free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to undo anything. You can be honest. You can be like this tax collector that beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God's like, welcome in. I love you justified, righteous, not guilty, forgiven, clean, beloved son, beloved daughter. Like, well, if you knew what I had done or the effort I've done this and, and all these things, if the shame I carry and the brokenness, the insecurity I feel, it's like Jesus sees all of that and he entered into it to lay down his life to pay the debt that we deserve to pay but can never pay ultimately to set us free. I love that he says to Peter at the very end, hey, catch that fish, grab that thing and it'll pay for you, for me, and for you. I'm here to pay your debt. I'm here to forgive your debt. That brokenness that caused that hole in our heart, that gap, that vacuum that Pascal talked about, that vacuum was caused by a rebellion against God. No matter how hard we try to fill it with achievements and morals and good and ethics and accomplishments and accumulation and stuff and comforts and experiences and entertainment, and as much as we try to take the things that make us feel further from God and we sweep them under the rug and we tuck them away and we numb ourselves, as much as we try that, that gap remains because that gap, that gap is a penalty for our rebellion against God. And Jesus came to pay that debt. 
and to cleanse us from it so that we could be reconciled to the presence of God. And that's what Jesus is showing us right here in this passage. He enters into it as the beloved son of God, pays our debt, and welcomes us in as beloved sons and daughters. That right now, today, I don't know what your week has been or your year or your life. Through Christ, you can experience freedom right now. Freedom from the need to prove perform, gain approval from, kind of accomplish things to atone for, freedom from all of that, to be a beloved son or daughter exactly as you are. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to exalt yourself. You don't have to keep trying to climb the ladder in whatever realm of life you're trying to climb the ladder in. You don't have to anymore. You're free. You're free. You're loved. And when you embrace that kind of freedom, that liberation is transformative. It's transformative, and it transforms us to be the kind of people that can actually show that kind of love to other people. That's what I love in this passage. The other thing that I think is powerful is not only is Jesus entering into the brokenness to set us free from our sin and our debt and those broken systems and structures that beat us down, he's also called us to use our freedom to love and to serve others. That's what he does here. He didn't need to pay that debt. It wasn't his job to pay Peter's tax. He's the son of the king. He had never sinned against his father and been separated. But he saw his freedom not as an opportunity to exalt himself over and against other people, but he saw his freedom as a reason to lean in and sacrificially love other people, to love Peter. Probably the best kind of passage in the Bible, and when I say passage, I mean whole book of the Bible um, that talks about this is Galatians. Galatians is a, is a story of a, of a church community, largely non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who had heard the good news of what God had done for them in Christ to reconcile them to the God of the universe. And they believed, and a church was born, and it began to grow and flourish in different ways, and they're enjoying relationship with God and forgiveness and hope and life, and they're enjoying that. And at some point, a group of people came in and said, hey, if you really want to be God's people, if you want to be acceptable before God and inherit all the promises that God has promised his people of old, then you also need to conform to these other religious traditions and structures. You need to circumcise all your kids, which for Gentiles, none of them would have been circumcised. That's a big deal. You need to accomplish these rules. Don't eat these foods. Go to these fests. Follow these practices. Do these ritual cleansings. And then you can be in relationship with God. And in fullness of that, you can be true children of God. Then... And the Galatians were buying it. And Paul writes him a letter like, who bewitched you? You had begun to experience freedom, the freedom of being a beloved son or daughter of God. Now you've you've submitted again to this, he calls it a yoke, this weight of slavery that's crushing you again. You're trying to like do all the rules and all the things thinking if I do it all right, then God will really love me. That crushes people. You don't need to. You need to put your faith in Jesus who laid down his life for you. And through faith in him, you get to inherit his whole identity as a beloved child of God. And you're free. You're free. And that's what he says, Galatians 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For as many, as you've, as, of, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So you're in him now. Later on, verse, chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He entered into the broken system, right? To redeem, to set free those who are under the law. That crushing burden to perform, to be in right relationship with God, he set us free from that so that we might receive adoption as sons, as children. And because you're children, God has sent the spirit of his own son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. He's saying, you're free. 
Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Many of us have been following Jesus for a while and you just kind of revert back to these ways of trying to prove your worth and establish a sense of righteousness and wholeness through our efforts and it just crushes you again. I've done it so many times. For me, it's like I want to succeed, I want to accomplish, I want to achieve, and I start trying, it's like inherent in who I am, classic Enneagram 3, if you're wondering. And so you're like, like accomplish, achieve, succeed, and then I'll feel like enough. And you know what that does to me, has done to me multiple times? It crushes me. It's exhausting. When I feel crushed, do you know what's the most liberating feeling in the world? Even in failure, even in exhaustion, even in mistakes, even when my kind of worst fears have been realized, the God of the universe loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And he loves you. It's liberating. Today, you can experience that again, whether for the first time or you've been crawling back into these crushing systems, you can experience the liberating love of God. But what Paul says at the end of that chapter, verse 13, so you're called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. When you understand the grace that God has given to you, and when you're able to get real honest about how broken you feel, the shame and the guilt and the crushing weights, when you can be honest about how much you feel insecure and afraid and how the struggles you process and the, the regrets from your past and the shame you carry, and you can be honest and experience, oh, God loves me? With all that, he sees all that, he knows all that, and he loves me? And what that does is it frees you not just from the weight of those things, but it frees you to show that kind of grace and love to other people. To show forgiveness, to show mercy, we are in a culture and a world where people are biting and devouring and consuming one another every day. This is, not, this is not what God has called us to. He set us free so we could show love, kindness, forgiveness, grace, mercy, humility. We can own our mistakes. We can ask for forgiveness personally. We don't have to minimize or deflect or ignore. You can be honest. And when we do that, there's a graciousness that we begin to experience, and that graciousness spreads, and it's transformative. So what God is doing to transform the world, he's setting us free from the law of sin and death to make us agents that bring grace and righteousness and life into the world. And we can live that way when your heart and your mind get, your, get around the, the beauty of what Christ has done to lay his life down, to set us free, and to free us to become those to reflect his love in the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need your grace. Uh, we need your healing. We need your Holy Spirit right now. I imagine people in this room that are exhausted from trying to earn or prove or cover up their own fears or their own insecurities or their own shame by accomplishing or accumulating or finding escape tactics to kind of run away from the pain that they feel. And I pray right now you would invite us into the love of God that you see us, you know us, you love us, and that you would set people free today. Uh, there might be people here today, it has been a long time, maybe since they've been in a church building. Maybe they're just feeling right now this kind of, kind of movement to kind of move back towards community, something maybe been away from for a long time or maybe never experienced.
And I pray right now you would free them from this deceptive idea that they need to accomplish something or earn something or prove something, that you'd free them to know your love, that you see them and you know them and you love them. Jesus, that you laid down your life to cleanse them, to forgive them, to wash them, that you would set them free. And for those like myself that maybe have been following Jesus for a while, but we keep reverting back to these broken ways of living where we feel so much pressure, would you set people free of that today? Maybe families falling apart and feel pressure to hold it together. Or would you set them free? Say, I see you, I see your family, and I love you. Your job is overwhelming. Would you set them free today? I see you. I see your weariness. You don't have to prove anything to me, accomplish anything, earn anything from me. I love you. Where life has been unraveling in some way, God, would you set people free today to know your nearness, know your presence, and know your love? And so, Jesus, we thank you. Open our eyes and our hearts to see the beauty of what you've done, paying our debt, forgiving us of our sin, welcoming us into your kingdom, into your family as beloved sons and daughters. Give us joy in that this morning and freedom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.